In this episode, Mampela Rampele, Club of Rome co-president and co-author of Limits and Beyond, talks about the importance of including relational, cultural and spiritual factors in addressing planetary emergencies. The talk is moderated by Roberto Pasqualino from the University of Cambridge. Today we have uh, Dr. Manfela Ramfele, who is the co-president of the Club of Rome, joining us. And we are very pleased to have you, uh, Manfela. Uh, do, do you want to say a few words just to say hi to the audience, please? Thank you very much, Roberto, and thanks to your audience, and I look forward to our conversations. Thank you very much, Montella. Uh, so, uh, as usual, amazing speakers for this seminar series. The first thing I'd like to do is to thank everybody helping me, and uh, the first person definitely is Sergei Koleshnikov representing Synergy, which is the Center for Environment, Energy, and Natural Resource Governance, very interdisciplinary research group, focused on energy policy, international law, and environmental sciences. Again, uh, not just academics, but people who want to make change for real. Uh, I'd like to thank, of course, the Club of Rome, who hosted us, and uh, all the speakers are also from the Club of Rome, which makes this event very, very valuable. At the same time, very timely for the fifth anniversary of the Limits to Growth. I'd like to thank the Conservation Research Institute at the University of Cambridge, which is actually the, let's say, the, the organization uh, paying the rent. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, they are, of course, very much focused on biodiversity. So, anything, as you know, this, this links a lot, even though we speak a lot about society. This links a lot to biodiversity at the same time, and that's what they research on. So everything which links to that. This is the David Attenborough building as well, uh, just linking with, with that top of topics. I'd like to thank the Bennett Institute for Public Policy as well, very much focused on the on the society and how we can change, make a change again from the University of Cambridge. And then the Global Sustainability Institute at Anglia Rask University, which is again another interdisciplinary uh, research institute very much focused on making impact in the real world, not just academia. So as usual, I'm happy to give a short introduction. So again, background information links to uh, what we, we tend to, to speak about. First thing, I'd like to advertise the next seminars. So we already had, this one is the number five, very much focused on the way humanity should behave, let's say, and how we basically want to make a change at the individual level as well. Next week, we will have myself going back to the big system level, trying to, with basically, again, technicalities and modeling as presenting literally what used to be my PhD uh, that was updating World 3 to become more financially driven and end up ending up in the same results that was proposed in limits of growth at the beginning. So actually that's, I think, interesting. And then Yayati Gosh that will kind of conclude the seminar series. So uh, what I want to talk about today is the following. As usual, this slide, every time I present that, uh, this is the team. Everybody, when speaks about limits of growth, thinks about Donella Meadows, Dennis Meadows, Jorgen Randers. Uh, that's definitely the case. There is Forrester at the back with the model, modeling methodology. They became famous for modeling the world in the 1972. However, today, as because we have the 
the co-presidents, I want to move a little bit backward as well, not just the 1972, but even before that. So speaking about what happened before that and make a little bit of a tribute to the person who first started the Club of Rome. And that person is Aurelio Pecce. Uh, you see that him in this, in this, in this slide. And uh, just to give an idea, Aurelio Pecce was the was an industrialist. I mean, that's the career he did. So he joined in 1927. So he joined really uh, the, the big industrial movement that was happening. It was started in Italy and spread all over the world. So he had, let's say, projects all over the world, you know, Latin America, Japan. And he was one of these, let's say, big managers uh, of industries of the time. Uh, he confounded Alitalia. Uh, during the 1940s, he joined political movements called Justizia Libertà, which is justice and freedom. Uh, he was in prison during the World War II, and then he kept going into this industrial career, let's say, until the point he realized that whatever he was doing was somehow generating results that were not consistent with what he was expecting to be well-being. Okay, so they were developing the industries, but realizing that this development was not really giving the best benefits around the world or all in the country they were building up capacity. So in 1968, he founded the Club of Rome and where he basically put all of his effort until 1984. Just to be clear, the, man the way he managed at the time was funny because he went to the, the heads, I mean, the, the big family of Fiat, these are very wealthy, of course, corporation. And he asked for being given a, a salary without doing the job for them, <laughs> but going around the world and trying to, to, to spread the message of the limits of growth at the time. He wrote several books, uh, Quality, uh, Quality Humana, The Quality of Humans, Cento Pagia in Pravenire, 100 Pages for the Future, and L'Heure de la Verité, which is French and the Time of Truth. Again, what I want to, um, my slides now are coming from this book, Hello, called Crusaders for the Future, that unless you know that, uh, it was written by Gunther Pauli, that maybe people know who Gunther Pauli is. Uh, you know, he's called like the Steve Jobs of sustainability today, he's a very famous person, just to let you know, when he was 23, he became the assistant of Aurelio Pecce. And that allowed him to see what Aurelio Pecce was doing at the time and become very famous today. So as usual, the main role of Aurelio was to fund this thing, was, was, was to basically ask the question to, I mean, of course, bring together the Club of Rome for the first time and uh, define the problem of predicament of mankind and propose that to the, to the MIT that, to build this model and then, Again, we usually say that the, the book of Limits of Roads was written 100% basically by Donella Meadows. But the reason why was not just because she was keen to do that, but because also she was pushed by Aurelio because he was very keen to have a humanistic approach to the problem of the global predicament of mankind. So it wouldn't just be a big list of equation or a lot of technicalities, but just something that was touching the heart of people. So he pushed for Donella Meadows to do that. She did, and that's what happened after that. So from 1972 to 1994, 
his job was to engage. So it's, if it was here today, he was the one going to COP27, COP26, COP28, and uh, going around the world, all the event possible, and try to bring people to, to understand and engage with this type of, this concept of the limits to growth. So that was the person we are talking about. So what he was, again, just because we have Manfela today, I just wanted to speak a little bit about the dream of Aurelio Pichet. Again, the source is the Gunther Pauli of 1987. So again, as everybody, let's get to the point of being an activist in this sort of after a big career. He has focus on, understands that the, the, the old people, we can call them this way, or those that are already in career, tend to have less uh, will for change. So he got, let's say, disappointed by his fellows, adults, as it is written in the book. And he was expecting that the young generation had a much uh, better chance to make change in the future. But the youngs of the 1980s are today what are again the old one. Even that, you know, I don't know if you find this kind of familiar today, right? Greta Thunberg, we even have the Pope Francis building up this community of young researchers every year in this, in this conference. So, I mean, we are still here. It's interesting to see that they were thinking the same uh, 40 years ago. So again, proposed platform to connect young people to, to invent and create what the future will be. And his dream was really bringing together all of them from all over the world, trying to put in so forth, so forth, kind of a declaration for the future. So the idea was, we want the young to make the change. And he enjoyed quoting the, what he said, you cannot predict the future, but you can invent it. So I think that was his motto, let's say. Again, uh, with the limits of growth, a lot of lesson learned was, were taken forward. And uh, all the criticism we get all the time are about, you know, you cannot predict the future. We keep saying that. They, they learned in the 1970s, of course. Um, so uh, based on that, what I want to say is to introduce Manfela. So again, thank you very much, Manfela, uh, for joining us and giving this talk. So just to give a sense of what she did in her life, it's, a, I think, an impressive career. So she started as a medical student in, in South Africa. She, uh, so she did a, also bachelor's in commerce. She did a PhD in social anthropology. So she's she an extremely diverse background in terms of studies. Uh, she joined the anti-apartheid uh, activist movement. South Africa at the time was a very big thing. Again, that were the uh, contextual issues of South Africa at the time, not really the, the limits of growth issue, but then you know, that was a, one of the, the main elements that we have to change as part of a sustainable and just society. She also worked at the, at the World Bank as a managing director. She's a trustee of several institutions, including the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Basically, she did it all. I mean, she became vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town, co-founded a lot of organizations in the SA, is now co-president of the Cabo Rome 2018. Uh, she's chair of the uh, Desmond Tutu IP Trust. She accomplished a lot, you know, she, she, she's, she wrote a lot of uh, literature as well. So books, she's now pushing a lot for the global equity for a healthy planet movement as well, by the Club of Rome. 
and uh, she obtained not less than 23 honorary degrees around the world in her career, which is a number I cannot even imagine. I mean, like unbelievable. Again, she, she managed to work. One, one of them was from the University of Cambridge in 2001 as well. In, also Harvard, she's fellow in so many uh, places, United States Medal of Distinction for Bernard College in the United States. Uh, in France, the Legion of Honor. So basically, I'm, I'm very pleased to have you, Manfela, today. That's very a honor for us to, to have you here. And uh, in the context of what we try to explain in this seminar series, these are around the Heart for All and the Limits and Beyond book, which were kind of the core for us. She had been supporting, of course, the Heart for All uh, movements, uh, 100%. Uh, also, I think, supporting the little bit in the writing or editing. And, uh, and she brought one of the chapters about Limits and Beyond, which, as you saw last week, was led by Hugo Bardi, which is titled, I Remanage Future for Generation to Come. Life on a healthy planet. So I suggest really to go and take the book and try to, to read that. It's a very deep read. Uh, so based on that, I think I will. I spoke already more than enough. So Manfela, I leave the word to you now, and I stop sharing as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Roberto. Um, I just want to use this opportunity for us to have a, a reflective moment. We are in a world which is in serious trouble. Mother Earth continues to send us messages about the need for us to return to the essence of whom we are as human beings. We are a relational species that has unfortunately become addicted to having rather than being. The multiple planetary emergencies upon us, whether you're looking at inequities and inequalities, wars and conflicts, climate crises, pandemics, and species extinctions, are all messages about our having gone astray. As communities of scholars and learners, we need to ask ourselves why we continue to have the gap between the knowledge we have, whether it's cultural, scientific, technological, and the actions we take that negate that knowledge. Our founder, Aurelio Piche, after promoting the Limits to Growth report that sold millions, realized that this gap, this what he called the human gap, is immune to simple increase in knowledge. We continue to emit carbon and sulfur into the air, we knowing that in fact it is damaging our planet. So what is clear from a review of 50 years after the publications of not only the limits to growth, but also before it is too late, which Aurelio Piche published with uh, his friend Ikeda in 1984. And then he sponsored the publication in 1998 called No Limits to Learning. 
his dream was clearly to get humanity to relearn what we already know and live as the relational species that we are. The Club of Rome over the last four years of my co-presidency with Sandrine dixon Declare has turned its attention to exploring how human beings might learn anew how to be human. We do so by looking amongst others at case studies of how self-organizing communities work to sustain the indigenous signs inherited from their ancestors as treasure troves to draw from, to address the multiple challenges that these self-organizing communities face. So in this talk, I would like to focus on some of the core elements of those lessons. First, consciousness of our inner self. The holism and the inextricable connections between our spiritual, our mental, and our physical beings that constitute who we are as human beings, including our infinite capacity to learn, is important. Second, Self-liberation from having, from the having addiction that we have to the being fully whom we are created to be is critical. Humans are created to be free to express their unique selves in harmony with the ecosystems they are part of. So freedom from mental slavery that continues to hamper the fullness of our human beingness remains a challenge. Third, the inextricable interconnectedness and interdependence of our humanity within the web of life must find expression in the socio-cultural, economic, and political relationships and institutions we are in so that we can show the best of ourselves. The best of ourselves should emerge from the kind of relationships and institutions that enable us to be the best versions of our humanity. This in my part of Africa, we call wood. So let's go back to the beginning with consciousness. Consciousness is the essence of aliveness. To be alive is to be conscious. As Desmond Tutu used to say, I am because you are. This consciousness is not just being aware of, but it is a deep realization. Life is about being aware of one's place in the ecosystems we are part of. People who go through life without full consciousness of whom they are, remain unrealized human beings. It was this consciousness that inspired us as student activists in the late 1960s to stand up and reject the idea of being defined by our oppressors as non-Europeans. Just pause and think about it. 
most of you are Europeans. Imagine if someone came and called you non-Africans or non-Asians. It is a preposterous way of engaging with people. So we asserted that we are not defined by our oppressors, but we have our own true essence as Africans who are black and proud of ourselves. We are not anti-apartheid activists, as people often refer to me. We are freedom fighters. We are fighting for social justice and the reestablishment of Ubuntu as the shared value system. Unfortunately, my country jettisoned this consciousness movement that freed us from the fear of the oppressors and enabled us to challenge the racist, sexist, and extractive colonial apartheid system that eventually set us free. Remember June 1976, high school students, because they became conscious of the power they have to say no, to being forced to learn through the language of the oppressor Afrikaans, they said no. And they opened the floodgates for the freedom we're enjoying today. Post-1994 South Africa has yet to redefine itself as a society that draws on Ubuntu to establish an accountable democracy where social justice reigns. My country is in public media for the wrong reasons most of the time. Post-colonial Africa as in general is still wrestling with the same problem as South Africa. We need to return to our ancient wisdom of Ubuntu, Umenala, to stop emulating the socioeconomic systems that are based on extraction of value from people and the planet. Consciousness is the essence of being human and that enables us and when you observe self-organized communities, it enables them to make sense of their circumstances, however challenging. They draw on the strength of their heritage and rise to the futures they shape. So let's look at the second concept of self-liberation. Self-liberation is a capacity we all have as human beings. The greatest impediment to self-liberation is fear. Fear of the what if. Fear of the unknown. As a black person, a woman and a rural village product of a self-organizing community, I learned to liberate myself into the unique being I am nested in very rich supportive relationships. It is a road well less traveled, more so at that time than now. But 
that did not stop us. We had to free ourselves from fear of a brutal regime, fear of toxic masculinity, fear of being different. Another example of a model that promotes self-liberation is the LEAP school model in South Africa, which is outperforming better resource public and private schools because it focuses on investing in helping young people to liberate themselves and live up to their full potential. Poverty, violence, and the many constraints that these young people come from are not enough to block their pathways to the future they would like to inhabit. We have more than 3,000 graduates of the system who are giving back to their communities as teachers, as accountants, as innovators, and as community leaders. So self-liberation is a critical success factor if we are to emerge from these multiple emergencies we face. The final concept I want to return to is that of human interconnectedness and interdependence within the web of life. It is a matter of returning home, learning to become fully who we are. The COVID pandemic taught us anew that what matters in life are our relationships. Good relationships within families, communities, and institutions enhance resilience against the COVID pandemic. Ubuntu is good for humanity. It makes us whole. Africa was supposed to have seen millions of unattended to corpses in the streets, in the villages, because of its vulnerabilities and its weak institutions. But this did not happen. Why? Resilience born of self-organizing communities and the genetic makeup that evolved over time made it possible for Africans to be much more resilient than they were expected to be in the face of COVID. Scientists to date still don't know how this happened. Is there any reason why we as a human community cannot start now to learn anew how to be human in the face of the multiple planetary emergencies we face. Policy change alone cannot change the world without the change in our consciousness and our self-liberation. I believe that we are being given an opportunity to start the learning journey for a future that can emerge from a shift in consciousness, a jettisoning, a jettisoning of fear of the unknown and the embracing 
of our relational selves within the web of life. That's what Mother Nature is sending as a message to us. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mafela. I think this was very detailed. Uh, please join me to. Yes. Uh, so thank you. Fantastic. We have uh, a few questions from the chat. I think uh, one mainly formal. Is there anyone wanting to ask a question from the audience here? Uh, yes, please. I may ask you to introduce yourself and to um, speak, up. speak up. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Ramkulink and United States of Hargat, it's a whole hub thing. I just wanted to greet you. I'm a Cambridge student, I'm a PhD student, and I just wanted to congratulate you on your study. You've been an inspiration throughout my life, and I've been watching your story. The struggles have been tough, but you keep on going. So I just want to say your generation inspired us to be here. So again, and I hope to see more of us, more Cambridge, little Oxford, little Harvard. So and keep growing. You are the leaders we are waiting for. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, any other question from the audience? Okay, so let's go Jorgen Nagler. Let's see if I can manage to let him ask his question automatically. Um, let me, no moments. Okay, ask you unmute. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ravile. Thank you so much for your uh, inspiring messages and uh, being so authentic. It means a lot. Um, my name is Jürgen Nagler. I work for the United Nations Development Program. And um, I'm doing my PhD on the role of mindsets. So I was very interested how you talked about the role of consciousness. Um, in my research, um, I've uncovered, I mean, it's, it's there in the literature, <laughs> that, we, that consciousness is at least um, consisting of our awake consciousness. Um, that's basically what we are a lot talking here about, but also to a large degree about the subconsciousness. And by some estimates, we are creating our lives um, by 90% from our subconsciousness. Um, what do you see uh, as best methods to shine light on our, on our mindsets and on the subconsciousness? How can we shine light on it and how can we shift it? Thank you. Well, thank you very much for raising that issue. I mean, mindsets are, in my view, a result of both the subconsciousness and the consciousness. But why I focus on consciousness is that we can, we now know that you can, in fact, by being willing to travel into yourself, reach into those subconscious elements that we tend to push away because we are uncomfortable with them. 
even though I mean they they say they don't subconsciousness happens when we are not fully awake, but we know that the human spirit, the mind, and the body are inextricably linked. So you can access, in my view, your subconsciousness if you allow yourself. Uh, people say you meditate, others will uh, have traditional healing rituals to do that. So for me, and this stems from the experience we had as young people growing up in a society that, that had defined us as none, the oppressor. I mean, I don't know that people realize just how destructive that is. To not only humiliate people by uh, denying them access to the resources which are in fact theirs, but you then justify that denial of equality with fellow human beings by defining them as non-person, not fully human, and therefore not deserving of the equality and the social justice, which is demanded of us as human beings. And so in my view, and judging from uh, both the case studies we have looked at, but also my own personal story is that it starts with a willingness to sit and have ask very difficult questions of yourselves. We had to ask ourselves as young medical students, how can we expect to defeat a minority uh, oppressor if we define ourselves as non-them, non-white, non-European? It's like women who, who aspire to be men because men are powerful rather than being uh, conscious of the power of their femininity. But in my case, because I was not only a, a black person under oppression, but also a woman in a very highly patriarchal, toxic masculinity environment, I had to tackle that as well, even within the uh, comradeship or the, 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 the company, the supportive company of my fellow activists. And so I, I would suggest that we have to find space to travel into ourselves. We have to find space for conversations about what we discover down there, either with our fellow uh, within institutions or within the homes or with friends, but also for those who have access to those facilities, with coaches or mentors or even therapists. Because shifting one's mindset from believing that you are less than, that you are powerless, and that your fear of expressing yourself is valid because you are not really able, you don't have the power to do what you desire to have. That can change 
And no one can change your mind from outside of yourself. But it is creating the environment. And in our experience, that environment is created through uh, supportive conversations. And being in Africa, we do that in a circle. And that circle can be as small as you like or as big as you like. Now, the leap school model that I refer to operates in the poorest areas of South Africa, Langa, uh, Guguletu, Philippi in the Western Cape, Deep Slot in Gauteng, uh, Alex, which is also another absolutely uh, destitute environment, and in, in rural area of um, uh, Hasikukuni, Jennifer's. Those young people who come into that space, I mean, burdened by the sense of inadequacy and what the healing circles that John Gilmore, the founder of the Leap School, sets up in the life orientation, which is the first period of every day of school, is the space that helps those young people to liberate themselves. To, to discover the power they have, the talents they have, the capacity they have to learn. And so I cannot but continue to believe that we as a human family have within us the capacity to be the best that we were created to become. But we've got to have the courage to confront the inner person who tells us that we are less than, we are inadequate, and we shouldn't try and disturb the peace. Okay, thank you, Manfela. Thank you, Jürgen, for the question. I, I just wanted to, because you, you, are come, you, you mentioned UNESCO, the good news is that the Club of Rome has a partnership with UNESCO within what we call the Bridges, Bridges Coalition. It's a network oh, yeah. of universities that are re-examining the idea of the so-called uh, the sciences that operate in silos. That human yeah. beings are not mathematical or science or humanity. We are holistic. So if UNESCO wants to add value to this uh, enriching of the educational experience of everybody from preschool all the way to uh, university, we need to be promoting the kind of education that bridges across these silos of disciplines. And we are very excited about some of the partners in that uh, uh, network who there is one in particular called the Learning Planet Network, hashtag Learning Planet Network. They are based in Paris. And every year we have a Learning Planet Festival to celebrate this idea that in fact, if we were to uh, transform our learning uh, and educational institutions into 
places that bring out the best in human beings yeah. and not just places that certify people with a PhD or a master's or whatever. We, we would be able to shift mindsets as Jürgen was saying earlier on, because young people, once they realize that they don't have to be defined by this, the, the biases that say yes. that they can't do mathematics because they are uh, from a poor environment or because they are women, or but that everybody has an infinite capacity to learn. But what's needed are institutions that bring out the best. And so UNESCO has a unique role to play in promoting the kind of learning that harmonizes ourselves as human beings with our ecosystems and promotes this interconnectedness and interdependence, not only between ourselves as human beings, but also to see the connections between mathematics and the arts, the arts and uh, the Science, world. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I think the first thing is we must acknowledge that they happen. Uh, Grasa Michelle, as far back as the early 2000s, was asked by uh, the then Secretary General Kofi Annan to do a study yeah. of the impact of conflicts on young people. And she produced a very comprehensive report for the UN about rape as a weapon of war. Weapon, yeah. But I haven't seen any action taken by the UN, whether it's UNESCO or UNDP, in specifically addressing this. It's left as a problem of uh, welfare and, and, and uh, humanitarian aid. It is not. It is a lethal weapon. And yeah. you have to acknowledge. So that's why I said to Jürgen earlier on that mindset change starts with acknowledgement of what is going on. But we're talking around it. Uh, we're talking about it as a woman's issue. It's not a woman's issue. It is a, a human issue. Human yeah. rights right. issue. That's being violated. Yeah. A, a concern for all of us. Well, I think the global, com I mean, the, the global institutions must acknowledge, as I said towards the end of my talk, that it's not only the issue of addressing policymakers. It is also yeah. about tackling at source, the source of the problems, the, the, the mindset that says it's okay to do things which are clearly in violation of the dignity of people. But I really believe that the UN has to also recognize that its own uh, profile, its own constitution, as an institution set up after the Second World War, it needs fundamental reform because the dominance of the victors of the Second World War in international institutions like the UN, the World Bank, and IMF is undermining 
mindset change on the global scale. Thank you. So I'll go now to pick a question from Gaia Schiavina. Well, first of all, uh, we need to acknowledge that people in power are unlikely to voluntarily give up power. And so the issue is not to focus on only those who have the power, whether you're talking about Western dominance, but to ask the question from those who are the majority of people. Let's remember that Western nations constitute less than, I, I think the last time I looked at it, less than 20% of the global uh, uh, population. The majority population is in Asia, followed by Africa, and then followed by Latin America. But when it comes to young people, because we started with Aurelio Piche's assertion that young people are the ones who can drive change. When it comes to that, the majority of young people are increasingly in Africa. And definitely by the 2050, Africans will be, the young Africans will be the majority people. And so it is in the hands of those who stand to gain the most from self-liberation that liberation can happen, that mindset change can happen. You cannot expect males who are benefiting from a patriarchal system to willingly surrender their power. Yes, there are many men who really are progressive and who are fighting for gender equality, but they are not the majority of men. And so we need to address ourselves as people who have a, an interest, not just as individuals, but as people who are committed to social justice. We are the ones, and we are the majority of people who can effect this change, but it will have to come from us leading from the front. Okay, thank you very much. I, I have myself about 20 questions to ask in addition to what we asked so far, uh, but I'll go now for a next one from Tobias in the chats. Uh, and he's asking that he's very impressed about what happened in South Africa in the past around uh, nonviolence resistance. And he's asking two questions, which somehow link to the earth for all. Is asking what can movements around the world, such as environmental or equality movements, learn from South Africa's example of nonviolence? That's the first question. And the second one: how how can we get stakeholders and institutions who are until now resisting change of the status quo on board so that we can get to the giant leaps? scenario of Earth for All. Thank you, Tobias. First of all, it is incorrect from a historical point of view to talk about South Africa having been liberated in a non-violent way. South Africa was extraordinarily violent. The colonial and the apartheid regimes were violent. And in the end, there was 
a low-grade civil war in South Africa. So there is this misnomer that South Africa uh, is an example of nonviolence. It isn't. Nonviolence was exemplified by Gandhi and by Martin Luther King, but even them, even there, the systems that were resisting were violent. But what we did achieve in South Africa is that with the leadership of Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, we're able to commit to reconciliation. And our constitution, particularly its preamble, acknowledges that we come from an ugly, violent past and that we need to work together to overcome that. Unfortunately, Mandela's successors in the governing African National Congress ignored that part. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission had a process of giving amnesty to people who wanted to be uh, forgiven for telling the truth about what they did in the past. But those who failed to tell the truth were encouraged by President Thabo Mbeki, who succeeded Mandela, not to worry uh, because they, there were no repercussions for not asking for amnesty or failing to get amnesty. And so we have now swallowed the cancer of violence in South Africa. If you look at our statistics, it's absolutely shocking. We have more people dying in South Africa than in war-torn countries. That's what happens with unprocessed psychological and emotional damage. It damages the mind. Neuroscience tells us that a people who have been traumatized and they don't go through a process of healing become themselves traumatizers. They become violators. And that's what's happening in South Africa. So I'm, I refer to it in my introductory talk because I believe South Africa needs to have major interventions to heal itself from this swallowed in uh, violence. Now, you also refer to the, uh, how can we get stakeholders and institutions who are still resisting change to move away from the status quo? One thing we know, as I said earlier on, is that People who benefit from the current system are very rarely willing to move to the next one. So the F for all scenario of the giant leap is an aspiration, but it's not going to come from convincing people. The Aurelio Pichet failed to convince uh, the policymakers 50 years ago that we need to stop emitting and we must stop extracting from the environment. And even today, we are not going to convince policymakers by simply having this aspiration of a giant leap as set out in our uh, book, uh, L4. It has to be worked at. We, each one of us, where we are, we've got to look at our institutions and say, how can I have an, an impact on my institution so it can 
become part of this giant leap that we, we talk about? How can I shift the mindsets of my colleagues who continue to drive these big uh, energy guzzlers and who continue to, uh, who remain addicted to having more and more? I mean, why should a family have more than two cars? No. Ah, uh, yes. But there are families that got five, six cars. Why? It's, it's more about the status they derive from having. And the damage they are doing to our environment is very far from their minds. So we have work to do as those human beings who are conscious of the responsibility we have to future generations. Thank you very much, Monfele. I was fortunate to be uh, born in a rural village and to be brought up by my great-grandmother who was widowed very young, totally illiterate, but she managed to protect her daughter who at that time, because she was so beautiful, that is her daughter, uh, that they used to uh, kidnap such beautiful kids, I mean, young girls and, and marry them off. She was smart enough to dress him up like a boy. And so, and then when she was of age, she made an arrangement with a distant family for her to be married by a decent gentleman. So I come from a family of very powerful, strong women. And so I learned from them this, the power of the feminine. They were not, they were very traditional women. They didn't, they were not like me. They were not uh, uh, rebels. But I was able because of my education and the, the spaces I was in to take it further into not only talking about being free as a black person, but being free as a woman, being free as a person with a different viewpoint. So the, the achievement of this self-liberation was a journey. You don't wake up in the morning and you, you are free. You have to work at it. I mean, as uh, Jürgen said earlier on that, the, the freedom, we are born with this desire for freedom. That's what defines us as human beings. But you've got to reach for it. You've got to, to, to travel inside and find in your subconsciousness that desire and let it be like a little candle or a light. And then you've got to nurture that light because there'll be lots of people wanting to blow it out. And I was fortunate because I had a reasonably good brain, so no one could really undermine me. And I would otherwise let them know that I, I'm not accepting that. And you become fearless. And there is nothing as liberating as not being afraid. And that's, I mean, you can see I'm not a very strong woman physically, but that's not what matters. What matters is whether you have that determination to let the human, the full human in you find expression. And that's what I've been fortunate to be able to do.
and it's not it's not impossible for you. You as young people today have got more resources, more knowledge, more networks than we could ever have. And so my uh, advice to you is as young people, particularly young women, sit together with friends and have a conversation about what is it that you want to see change in your life. And together you can support one another to become the free agents that you have been created to be. Thank you very much, Mopila. That's very deep to say. Uh, so we pick a question from the audience here. So may I please ask you to introduce yourself and say something? Uh, thank you so much. My name is Mark Reader, and I'm still sort of a scholar in the Department of Land Economy here. Um, and I, I, I have two things. My first motivation was to say, have things got better? And when I was at school in Cape Town, Gungo, Ulet, Ulanga, and Dipravir, and places like that, so weekly, a weekend death toll was normally two or three hundred, I think. The population will have gone up, so I'd be interested to hear it's still like that. But the main, sort of more important one, perhaps, is here in Cambridge, we have so many cars, there's no room to park them. But on the other hand, if you go to country areas nearby um, on a weekend, there are no buses whatsoever for old people from villages all over East Anglia, say, on a Sunday. It's almost as bad as that. So we've got masses of cars. Well, the real point I wanted to make about the cars, and it's a sin we all make, is that according to the Economist Intelligence Unit, essentially the automobile industry have given them the statistics of building of automobile plants and so on, 90% of families in the globe will have no automobile in 2030. And I think that's a very important point regarding, um, you know, the sort of the aspirations of people here. We have lots of cars and argue forever and ever about traffic, but really they are the problem, I think. But thank you so much for listening to this long sort of diatribe. I'd love to hear if things have actually got better. Thank you very much. I mean, this issue of public transport is at the heart of good governance. Because there's no reason why we can't have, given the science we have, the technology we have, that we can't have public transport catering for most of us. I would happily not have a car if I could be assured of being able to move from A to B to Z. But public transport in my country, I mean, like the rest of the infrastructure is just being decimated by people who don't care about the future of our great grandchildren. So my first question is about consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, that as you pointed out, consciousness depends on the people you're talking to, right? So maybe somebody is oppressed, doesn't know, so is unconscious. Uh, but at the same time, it can generate bad behavior. Uh, so when people in the developed part of the world get conscious about the limit of the world, uh, decreasing their wealth or whatever, they can get defensive, okay? So I find myself an Italian, so I'm seeing this now in the current government where they are stopping migration from the South. I'm, I'm seeing this in Brexit where the biggest reason why Brexit happened was the, the problem of mobility of people. They didn't want people to come in the UK and take jobs. 
uh, and you know at the same time you know if you so my, my 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 challenge is when I talk to people in my country or in, in the UK, uh, how can I, what can I tell them about consciousness to help them take decision which could benefit everyone just rather than just themselves? Well, I I don't know that people. I mean, in whether it's uh, Italy or the UK, that the, this homophobia or xenophobia or whatever phobia or whatever obstructions they have to people moving freely are doing so because they are unconscious. They are very conscious. We, we mustn't forget that the people who are now being kept out from the African continent come from countries that were decimated by European countries during the colonial period. And I'm glad that this COP27, however moribund it was, at least came up with an acknowledgement of loss and damage as something that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with. The same thing with the IPCC report for the first time this year, there was an acknowledgement that the planetary uh, emergencies that we face today in large measure come from the plunder of ecosystems as part of the colonial uh, conquest period. So if you want to raise awareness of this and acknowledgement of this, I, I talked to somebody who said that actually in history books, in many European countries, there's no teaching of the stuff. Now, if you don't know that the wealth of Europe comes from South Africa, particularly the UK, uh, and many other, I mean, the Congo was plundered by Belgium, France plundered the likes of Haiti and, and many countries in West Africa. If we don't, we have, those conversations are not being had at the UN. They're not being had uh, anywhere because they're taboo. Because the leaders, the people who are dominant in international institutions are the very people who benefited from that colonial conquest process. And so it is not something that I can say to you, this is what you need to do. But I do want to also uh, challenge something that you said about developed and developing. Again, it's a matter of consciousness. When we talk in international uh, fora about this is a developed country and that one is underdeveloped or is developing, what is the frame of reference? What does a developed country look like? Can we really say that the US is fully developed given it's the quality of its social relationships? And, and so can you, are we only talking about developed and developing in relation to uh, high income and low income. What what is the standard by which we are measured in this? Now, if we don't interrogate those basic things, 
And, and I, I encourage you to visit the Club of Rome website where I did a blog on this, the power of language beyond words, that we use these terms. You hear people saying, well, it's a universal truth that X, Y, and Z. Who said? Did you ask me whether I share that? So we at the Club of Rome are also challenging the underlying assumptions of the language that we use in international relationships. And so your question is valid, but we won't solve the problem of migration across the Mediterranean uh, Sea by raising the consciousness of Italians. They are conscious. The issue is how can Europe and Africa have those human-to-human -human conversations to recognize that we are mutually interdependent. We are inextricably connected. We are one human family. And we cannot, however high the walls are in, in Italy or in, in the UK, because of the original sin, People who are desperate in those uh, former colonial uh, environments are going to go like chickens going home to roost. They're going to arrive in Europe. So let's have a conversation rather than continue to lose so many beautiful young people drowning in the Mediterranean and the anger that divides us rather than the empathy that should come out of an, a reading of the message that something is wrong and we together can have a conversation or a set of conversations about how Europe and Africa can transcend the legacy of European colonial conquest and become partners in a mutually just transition to global equity for a healthy planet. Thank you very much, Mantela. That's definitely a, a very good way to catch that. I always, you know, I also work in trying to help people, but sometimes it's very hard to break, you know, a mindset more than anything other and else. I have another question here from. Uh, uh, Dergen uh, again, and he's asking basically a positive vision is more likely to change mindsets and behavior. Therefore, instead of talking about limits, how about shifting attention to mindfulness, self sufficiency, and harmony? So it's basically asking what we, I think we already agreed to do. <laughs> so please, if you have any anything to say, please. Yes, I, I agree that we need a positive vision, but you can I can't pronounce a vision that you all don't share. And that is why conversations, these conversations in circles where we are doing eye-to-eye -eye contacts are essential for us to discuss what kind of world we want to live, live for our grandchildren and how do we achieve it from where we are? 
and how can we use our comparative strengths and knowledge systems to be able to get to where we want to be. I agree that uh, mindfulness is important, but mindfulness without transformative action is not helpful. It becomes an indulgence. Okay, thank you very much for this. Uh, I see that there are not other strong questions from the chats, unless people please tell me. Uh, I would ask another question myself at this point. Uh, and my question is about time, in the sense that other people in the previous seminar asked about how much time we have to shift the world. We are late, climate change is destroying everything and so on. And uh, I am also aware that when we speak about consciousness, it tends to take time to reach consciousness. I mean, if you want to change a person, make it a conscious, unless you are Elkart Tolle, who gets conscious on the, from one day to the next, somebody cited him as well in the chats, um, that takes time. So my question for you is, how do you think we should invest in making people more conscious in the context of uh, having little time to really shift things around? You know, uh, a colleague of mine whom you know, uh, Carlos uh, Pereira, who's uh, vice president of the Club of Rose, Alvarez Pereira, uh, alerted me to the this concept of time. You know, <clears throat> We, as modern human beings, are forever focusing on how little time we have for everything. We are always, we don't have enough time to meet people. We don't have enough time to reflect. We don't have enough. So time is an elastic concept. It depends on your mindsets. If you are looking in the short term, you're always going to feel under pressure that there isn't enough time. What we have to do is to learn from mother nature. There is a book which I would love to recommend to all of you called um, Building Innovation on Millions of Years of nature's field uh, studies. So mother nature has been at work, whether we, we cooperate or not. If you look at how natural ecosystems regenerate, even after many, many, many years, because they never, Mother Nature doesn't give up. So the idea that we don't have time to change our lifestyles, our way of relating to uh, the ecosystems we inhabit, may be what we feel, but the fact of the matter is that, as someone said, 
the ecosystems will always find a way of regenerating themselves with or without our help. But we are on a suicidal path, as uh, Antonio Guterres said, because we are at war. We have declared war against nature. So I think the issue is where we start. Let's start by stopping to do the things we know are destructive and do more and more reflection, whether it's in conversations or in meditation or mindfulness about what can I do differently? The wastefulness. I mean, I live in a country where we dump food but children go to bed hungry. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. It's not something that needs time. It needs a focus away from destruction to regenerative approaches to life. And then we are in harmony with mother nature. And I can tell you, she's very generous. She will help us along. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much again. Uh, amazing here you're talking about these things. Uh, I have then another question uh, from the audience. Please, if you want to come closer as well or from there is fine. Thank you so much. I absolutely agree with what you've just said. I'd like to take up the point of Jürgen Nagler. Thank you very much for the question. Regarding to self-sufficiency, I'm an agricultural scientist actually, um, but I'd make two comments really. Um, uh, first of all, it sort of it, 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 self-sufficiency kind of implies you're not interdependent and not in, uh, interconnected. So I would make that point. So thank you. So at this point, I'll go for. There's another question in the chat. Yeah, I, I get the question. Now, Gaia, the first point is that there are more, more people who, who care than those who don't. But what we, and particularly your generation, has to do is to find those that care. That's why I said to you, you are a generation that can very easily build very powerful networks. And if you lead by example, as caring human beings who are not going to be changing their iPhones every three years and then just creating electronic waste. I mean, those are things within your power to do. But as has been said, it's not a question of each one of us doing our individual thing. We are interconnected. Now, the more of your friends you get into the circle of caring people, people who change their lifestyles in harmony to make it more in harmony with nature. That makes a big difference. I mean, instead of people in rail care uh, want, having been so desperate as to want to drive, why can't young people? I mean, when we were young activists, I was a medical doctor qualified and I spent I think 10 of my first years as a medical professional in the poorest communities, 
sometimes not even being properly paid. But it, that was not, the pay was not important. What was important is that through exercising my knowledge as a healthcare professional and working with people to help them in the self-liberation process, we're able to shift the country. And you remember Margaret Mead, what she said? Never underestimate the power of a few caring individuals to change the world. And if you go back in history, it's the only thing that's ever changed the world. So Gaia, you are on it. Just get on it. And imagine if all university students all young professionals, all young innovators were to be in this mind of what can I do? How can we shift the, the, the needle away from waste, away from I don't care to I care? And you feel better. Let me, let me promise you, you may not have money because you are working in a poor community, you're not getting paid well, but you are happy because you are doing something that makes you whole inside. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I, I assume Gaia will be happy about this answer as well. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll ask the very final question. We have one minute left, so I will, I will just be quick. My question is really the link between what you said and everything said, everything else that was said in the previous seminars. You know, people like Jorgen Randers build the Earth for all model. My question is for you, what is your view on models? Uh, in the sense that they, the models tend to be very powerless in comparison to you know, political speech, activism, and things like that. Uh, when you, they build a, a new indicator called social unrest index, they had the human well-being index, they tried to demonstrate them somehow. And again, it's very hard to model things like consciousness or you know, people will or anything else. So my question for you is simply, what do you think about the role of models for the future of the Club of Rome, for example, or anything else? Well, models have their uses. They give us a sense of within certain parameters, this is what we can expect. But they are not the answer to the problems of planetary emergencies. Models, on their own cannot help us to shift our mindsets away from the destructive path we are on to a more uh, regenerative pathway. We need to use the space that models create in warning us as the limits to growth models of 50 years ago we're so uh, prescient because what's happening now is what they said then would happen if we didn't change. And of course, knowing all of that information, we still went ahead and we are where we are. Now doing more models that will show that if we continue, it will continue to be the same. It's not going to be a sensible way to be like, as Einstein said, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result is the definition of madness. And we are demonstrating 
some madness as a human race. As Guterres said, that this war we have declared against nature is suicidal. And suicide, we know, results from where people lose their sense of perspective. And so my call to all of us is we know enough from all the models that have been done, what to expect. But every day, starting today, you can change the trajectory of this planet by doing things differently, by being that human being who cares about others, who is conscious of the impact of the actions that you take on others and on the ecosystems you are in. We can do it. And I'm sure we will do it. Thank you, Mafela. Uh, again, fantastic talk. And I hope to speak again soon. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit clubofrome.org.